Good morning and welcome to the Isle of Faces. Welcome to part 10. We're in double figures now of A Feast for Crows. I am Sir Buckley. I'm coming to you from a very, very, very sunny England. I've been lucky enough to be out in the countryside in the blue and the green the last couple of days. I am so very lucky to live here. So you know how the solar energy works around here. I'll be going fast and going energetic today. Also with me, you might be able to hear already, is the lovely Princess Zelda, our border collie. She is she's joining me today. She's currently led under my feet. So if you hear snuffle or some ruffling, it might be she's getting more comfortable. It might be she disagrees on a point with me about Cersei or something like that. We'll discuss that as it comes. But she's don't worry. I've got the basketball in the background. So she's watching that. She'll probably be fine. Now I'll be straight up with everybody today. I'm gonna kind of rush through this a little bit. Well, not rush through. At least the introduction. We're going to get going as quickly as possible because uh, no real notes to make of before we get going. I will just tell you quickly what chapters we're looking at today, of course. Because as quick as I might want to go, I think George has other plans. He's put some big chapters in our way today. We have Cat of the Canals slash Aya 3, the final Aya chapter of this book. We have Samwell 4, a very emotional chapter which I think I would say has the biggest death of the book in it. We'll get to that. Cersei 8, where the King's Landing of Cersei Lannister really begins to fall apart if it hasn't already and we end with Brienne 7 the chapter I would say probably of A Song of Ice and Fire the no chance no choice Brienne chapter very very excited about that you might have seen on uh, Twitter the other day 6,000 words <laughs> six and a half thousand I think notes of uh, Brienne 7 so I'm looking forward to that but let's start back at the beginning instead with cat of the canals slash ir3 i will do my usual thank yous of course very very quickly here thank you to our wonderful patrons thank you to all of you for downloads and sharings you might also have seen on twitter july our most successful month ever uh, we beat june out june was uh, broke the previous record we've topped that again i've already said thank you on twitter but i'll say it again to you now you're also very much appreciated especially our wonderful patrons for your generosity and support and the chit chat we have over on patreon etc etc you all send such lovely messages make contributions give feedback keep me going you are really a different kind of solar energy aren't you but i'll do more thank yous at a later date instead for now let's get going with cav the canals slash ir3 so i have mentioned before again on twitter that i do not actually like this chapter very much or i didn't on my last read the one before this at least if people ever accuse George of meandering or getting a bit bogged down in the description that might not strictly be required, I would have to say this is where that sort of problem sticks out to me the most. When I was on my last reread, before I was doing it for Valerie Redis, I just found myself kind of nodding off. I just wanted to get through the chapter because I obviously knew what was coming at the end. I knew there was important stuff. But there is a lot of description, a lot of world building that isn't, uh, it isn't immediately recognisable why that's in there. I probably would have even said that this is my second worst chapter of the book behind the original Aeon chapter at the beginning. But also, more than fair, I did get some blowback on that idea uh, of this not being a great chapter. Obviously, a lot of you out there do like it. It is very good, in your opinion. And I certainly do enjoy the ending, or maybe just before the ending. But I imagine there will be much more good stuff for me to uncover this time around. I know there's good stuff. There's no such thing as a bad chapter in these books so don't worry i'm not completely panning it i don't want to get rid of it or anything i'm just saying there's some slow bits in this here chapter and for all i know maybe all that ends up being incredibly important for Aya's future chapters or someone else's future chapters 
who are we to say, really? You can never know, can you? Besides, ignoring that, it is our final Aya chapter of the book, so I have to appreciate it for what it is, not just that ending, or again, the bit before the ending. And like her sister, we will see Aya again in dance, that's true, but we get so few sightings of her that we have to appreciate what we can. And we have to consider also that both of the Aya dance chapters are shorter than this one and her second chapter during Feast, so we're not going to get as much Aya going forward. And even though it's a cliff drop from Aya's chapter total in Storm to now, it hasn't actually felt too bad in Feast due to the chapter's even spacing. We've spoke about this before. We have a beginning Aya, a middle Aya, uh, and this is now the end Aya. Pretty much the same with Sansa. And the low chapter count in Feast in general also just doesn't make it seem that bad. We never seem like we're that far away from an Aya. That's going to change in Dance. Aya won't appear until that book's 45th chapter, and then she'll disappear in the 64th. So she's really there for a very short section of the Dance of Dragons. If we want to be really nerdy, which I know we do, and compare the percentages, Aya's three chapters in Feast makes up 6.6% of the total book. In Dance, it'll be just 2.8% of the book, which doesn't actually sound like that big of a drop-off, but all things considered, it really is. And just before we get going, I also want to note we're next to a Sam chapter today, so that so that's up next. That's that little connection between those two continuing, however slight that might be. The main purpose of this chapter is to show Aya in her element. To keep with our earlier Sansa comparison, we've moved on to the full immersion phase now. Hence, title-hopping Aya, who's had a million names already, actually changes the name of her chapter now. She's well into her mission with Brusco, she's incredibly well-versed in the city, she's collecting tons of info for the Kindly Man, all over a matter of months. And it's been a while since we've had a single chapter process that amount of time. That was usually reserved for Daenerys back in the day. And we did get hints of this kind of comfortability and immersion, uh, in that slam chapter as well, but now we're really getting the, the full view of it, I guess. That name that she's changed to, Cat of the Canals, obviously it's half of the name Catelyn, with Sansa picking up the other half, but it's also fitting for Aya herself, given her past connections. Sirio's connection to the Sea Lord of Bravos was a tomcat. Aya herself chased cats around King's Landing, as she remembers here today. She, even now, gets followed around by a bunch of them in this chapter, maybe thanks to her warging, I'm sure you've seen that theory. We'll discuss that later and then we can go into all the actual physical comparisons of cats and Aya. how she's small enough to, th to sneak into places how she's independent how she can quickly get out a claw or a needle and i do long long for the day when john and i will fight side by side and needle will be nicknamed short claw next to john's long claw so let's do our same research into the use of her own name as we did for sansa elaine if we're talking about cat let's talk about Aya quickly You'll recall Sansa only internally referred to herself as Sansa once in her last chapter when thinking about her father's greatsword ice. So what about this chapter? How much does Aya slip up and think of her true name internally? Well, the word Aya appears 13 times in this chapter, which is way more than the three Sansas back in the Elaine chapter. But of that 13, six times are in reference to Aya as a separate different person either by the kindly man or the waif or by Aya herself a bit like Peter Baelish was doing with the word Sansa but the remaining seven are all Aya as the narrator referring to herself as Aya internally and they all come in the second part of this chapter the first instance is when she's with Darian immediately and remembering how she wanted to ask him to take her to Eastwatch so like with Sansa that's a connection to her previous life and a previous family member in wanting to see John. that's sneaking through there the next is also a reference to Darian 
then all the other references come after killing Darian. One where she's asking if poison would work on dogs, so she's remembering her time in Harrenhal and with Weiss there. So clearly, as much as she thinks she's cat in this chapter, she is most definitely not, and definitely not after killing Darian. She also slips up and says, my lady, instead of milady, which is a lesson we'll see Roose Bolton teach Fionn in dance coming up. So that's enough name talk for now. Now let's get on with the actual text itself, shall we? We begin in Aya's new world with Brusco and his daughters as we're introduced to what seems like just another day for her and for them. This is her routine. These are the people she's used to. This is her mission that she's fully into now. And you have to think, the kindly man must be getting a whole bunch from her. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of kids doing similar things out there for him or for the faceless men. Though if there was, it would lend credence to that idea of Varys once having been involved with the faceless men. For what is Aya doing other than being a little bird at the moment? Even if it's not strictly other kids doing it, we can assume there are other agents out there learning three things and bringing them back or maybe more than three things. So the kindly man must have a really unique view of this city. But as immersive as this chapter is for getting into Aya's mindset and routine this first full page is all just about Aya and the other children starting off their work day by the end of said page we're already getting into hints that her new persona is not without its cracks here's the first quote of the day some nights the wolf dreams are so vivid that she could hear her brothers howling even as she woke and once Brea claimed that she was growling in her sleep as she thrashed beneath the covers yes as we've said in a, a million times before even in just two previous chapters Aya can't leave Aya behind I don't think it'd be possible even if she'd never met a direwolf, but this connection back to Nymeria makes it completely impossible. Especially given how strong these dreams still are in terms of sense and feelings, it's a connection she does actually like. She doesn't really want to get rid of it. Given what we think might happen in the Winds prologue, the fact that Aya can still see with this clarity through Nymeria's eyes might be of really high importance. We might learn some really key things there still we don't know the ins and outs of walking, of walking so we might see the prologue as a memory rather than live she might see the remnants of it kind of like we saw after the red wedding we don't know interestingly so Aya is growling and thrashing when she has these wolf dreams I'm not sure if it's mentioned if Bran and John do the same obviously we don't find out about Rob or Rickon but Bran is a lot further along the control scale and knows a bit more about walking and John is a bit older too Plus, neither of them have had anything as traumatic as the Red Wedding, I would argue anyway, and neither are trying to hide that part of themselves. Perhaps the sheer distance from Nymeria is doing the trick in that regard. Importantly, Aya admits she quite likes the dreams, like I said, feeling as strong as Nymeria does, that's important. Unfortunately, there are other, more human dreams mixed in there about what happened at the Red Wedding, etc. So really, we get both factions of why Aya is Aya and not Kat right next to each other, despite Aya telling herself the opposite again and again. As we head down the long canal on Brusco's boat, we get the first of the major world-building vibes that'll be strong throughout this whole chapter. Stuff like the Palace of Truth, or the actual names of some proper Pavosi families, we've not had that before. And that kind of stuff, I can handle a little more than all the descriptions of people she's going to sell her cockles to later on. But as we say, who knows what will be valuable later on and what won't. And even then, there's normally something key to pick out anyway, such as the second half of this page where we see Brusco's buying habits and we're also told Aya is getting stronger shifting all these casks of, of seafood etc. That kind of thing, probably going to be haunted later on. This is where Aya thinks on her new constant finding of these three pieces of information for the kindly man and it's genuinely interesting to see how almost every piece of knowledge can be of use in some way. Aya is ever observational, curious and being little is perfectly suited for such a task 
and she links it in here with a bit more backstory about the city. Another quote. Bravos was a city made for secrets, a city of folks and masks and whispers. Yeah, George knows how to get us interested in a place. All these things that I does learn and reports back to the kindly man about hot sauce ingredients and the like, it seems like George just stretching his world building muscles and can be written off as unimportant. But again, you can bet your bottom dollar that once wins and dream are out, we'll be back sifting through this passage to find some clue about the vixen of seven drunken oarsmen that will suddenly be very important for some reason. She also has this early focus on the stranger and the many-faced god, which is fitting because perhaps that's the role I will come to fill as the stranger is deaf. And the kind of man talks about how all the religions have a figure that represents him. The old gods, though, they might qualify as an outlier there, but Aya isn't supposed to be remembering that, is she? So again, it's just slipping in earlier and earlier. As Aya tells us about the upkeep of her duties in the House of Black and White, we also have the extended passage of Aya's cockles and clams route through the Ragman's Harbour, and probably this is the most guilty of the slog I spoke of at the beginning there. It's not often I find myself glazing during these books, but like I said, I do have to admit, I do it a bit here. As strong as it is in world building and atmosphere forming, in terms of making Aya feel like she's found a place in the world that is important, a place that's obviously such a collection of different backgrounds and creeds and types of people, perhaps more so than anywhere else we've seen just yet. We also get the continuation of her learning skills from here, there and everywhere, including more cultural references and idiosyncrasies. You can almost persuade me that this is a training montage for Aya joining the gentleman bastards of Kamor. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you really should. We also get a salad or sand reference, so that sustains me because I always enjoy those. Another quote here. Savron was the worst. Everyone said she had robbed and killed a dozen men, rolling the bodies into the canals to feed the eels. So just a little bit of foreshadowing from George for what's going to be coming up later in the chapter. Aya's getting uh, ideas of what to do here. So just after this kind of world building sequence, Aya, she directs some new Westerosi sailors who've just arrived to meet the girls she likes the most. And we'll learn a bit more about the employees of the Happy Port to build upon what we learned in Sam's chapter. That's where he found Darren in his chapter, you'll remember. We also learn of the Black Pearl, a courtesan descended from the Westerosi. Do we know why we are told of such uh, detail? Were we given such detail about this? Not yet, we don't. But it does seem classic George for later. There seems like something he wants us to remember here. Maybe not, who knows. Either way, that leads Aya to asking the sailors for news of Westeros and for the war. For some more information to give the kindly man, perhaps? Or because she is interested as Aya? We are left to decide in this instance. And what she learns about first is about her own Aunt Lysa. Murdered by her own singer. Oh, it's naught to me. Cat of the Canals never had an aunt. She never did. I suppose hearing about relatives, even one you've never met, their death is preferable from being right outside the door when your immediate family is being slaughtered. Hence, Aya not really having any reaction here but she's kind of confused should she be having any reaction should she not i forget which one i am at the moment that kind of thing aya finally comes upon the happy port itself and in, inside we find still darian doing his singing and we get some information of the young lana too and let's take a sidebar here because I've got a lot to say about lana actually because really when it comes to lana george you do tease we've got a young girl with golden curls which are highlighted so much here and do not forget, we once had a child named Barra, whose hair was used to prove her existence as a Baratheon. So we have to figure that this Lana could be a Lannister relative of some sort. Perhaps one of the many from Lannisport, possibly. Perhaps from Jerrion, the uncle or the brother of Tywin. Or perhaps from Tyrion and Tysha themselves. Hmm. That last guess makes a lot more sense. And I'm aware I'm not treading any new ground here. I'm sure people have been thinking about this kind of thing for quite a while. 
Lana is 14, so she would be the right age for being Tyrion and Tysha's daughter, and, and the custom of the sailor's wife, Lana's mother, would make sense as a dark reflection of her short, annulled marriage to Tyrion. What I mean by custom is she's the one who makes her clients marry her beforehand, like we saw with Darian. So that would be, yeah, a bit of a dark reflection. The flip side, which I must say is also persuasive, is that Lana's mother is called the sailor's wife, and there'd be nothing to connect Tyrion with being a sailor, whereas Gerion absolutely would be. He was a sailor. He sailed off to Valeria to find Brightwall. Tyrion's actually going to think about that in his dance chapters in the next book, so a little connection there. Plus, the sailor's wife has been told by Inya, Y-N-A, Inya? What do you think? I never very good pronunciations. I'll say Inya. That her first husband is dead. So Tyrion's not, but Gerion could be, and he especially could be lost at sea, so that makes sense. The big counter to that is that Gerion already has a bastard daughter in Joy Hill back in the Westlands, and she's only 11. So Lana would have had to be, been born in Westeros and then brought over with her mother if she's Gerion's. And that isn't impossible, but we're now getting a pretty in-depth theory on what would be, if it is Gerion's daughter, a pretty minor character really. Unless this is brought to our attention as foreshadowing to Tyrion meeting Lana, believing her to be his daughter and the sailor's wife to be Tysha because he is so desperate to find her, only to find out they're actually Gerion's. Like I say, we're probably stretching too far here, but possible. The sailor's wife might also be ignoring Tyrion as her first husband because of the incredible trauma she went through if she is Tysha and labelling someone she met later as her first, explaining again how Lana could be Tyrion's. Let's just assume she is for a moment. What does that mean? And what importance does that have? Will Tyrion come through Bravos on the return journey to Westeros that we assume he's going to do? There hasn't been any indication of that so far, but he could be sent there as Danny's envoy for some reason, and it would certainly be interesting to see him in such an environment. I think we'd all like that. We get a lot of world building in this chapter about the big families of the city, etc., and I won't be able to use all of it, so perhaps George is laying some down now for Tyrion later. So does Tyrion not give Lana and the sailor's wife their due because he's so focused in on his mission, or does he let that mission flail because he can't help himself? He gets this hint that maybe there's Tysha here, maybe Lana, whatever, and therefore he stymies an aspect of Danny's invasion. That could be a very interesting aspect. Finally, if the sailor's wife is Tysha, there would again be a certain dark irony, cruelty there that she was not a sex worker when she met Tyrion. Tyrion is always told that she was, then discovers she was not, only to meet her again as a sex worker. It could be the trauma of the barracks pushed us towards that kind of life. We, who, who can say? We don't know. It is said that the sailor's wife has a sadness about her, so again, that definitely makes sense. And just to close off this little thinking, we have this Lana mother, Lana sailor's wife connection back to Rosie and her own mother back in Old Town in the prologue. So we're just getting those connections right from the beginning to where we are now. But let's ignore the fear, as tempting as it is to talk theory all day, let's ignore Lana for now and talk about Darian. What about Darian? Not only do we have his previously discussed crimes of abandoning Sam and the Night's Watch, he's actually gone the complete opposite of his duties, dressing himself in every colour he can find while he repeats all the same chat lines to different girls throughout the city. You know, giving up the black is one thing, now you're, it's almost like you're rubbing in, dressing all the most flamboyant colours you can find. He is a man of the Night's Watch, she thought, as he sang about some stupid lady throwing herself off some stupid tower because her stupid prince was dead. The lady should go kill the ones who killed a prince, and the singer should be on the wall. Right from the off, I can't get this this idea that Darren should be doing something else. That's how things should be, and he's not doing it. But eventually, it's time for Aya to leave the happy port, and it just so happens Darian is leaving too. 
And as they walk together, Darren lays out all his plans for advancement in his new life. How much better that life is than the one that he would have had at the wall. Who cares about his fat friend, about the old man, about the command of someone named Lord Snow? And he leaves us with this. Well, it's too late now. Just so, said Cat, as they stepped into the gloom of a twisty little alley. And I love, love, love that Aya decides to kill Darian. I have to admit, yes, of course, there's a darkness there. There's a ten-year-old girl who was murdered before out of need, or has done so to people about to try and kill her, whatever. This is something very clearly different. It's premeditated, to a degree anyway. She herself is in no danger. No one else is in immediate danger. She didn't need to escape. She could have easily just let him walk away just fine, but she doesn't. As far as we know, it's not a fight. Darren isn't given a chance to defend himself. He isn't given a trial or anything of the sort. He's stabbed in the back or has his throat slit in the shadows. And it's indicative of her future if the Mercy chapter has anything to go by, but again, also very troubling. But it's still amazing on two different counts. And there is the most obvious and the one we've discussed the most. You can change your chapter title all you like, but this is still Aya Stark talking. A cat of the canals has no reason to be interested in the watch or the justice of doing the killing yourself. Aya Stark does. She grew up in a household when the importance of the Night's Watch vows are hammered into from a young age. She comes from a house where her father taught the importance of vows in general in the first place, but also of it being their ancient duty to deal with those who break such vows. That's what the Starks are for. Aya wasn't invited along to watch such a dealing as her brothers were, but she's long moved past those gender barriers now. The Starks and the Night's Watch are forever entwined. Countless ancestors of Ayers have assisted them, have joined them, have dealt with deserters. Her own uncle was a member. Her favourite brother has risen to Lord Commander now, apparently. Darian, turning his back on the Night's Watch, means he's betraying the nice fat guy that she met before. He's betraying all those on the wall now and forever in the past. All her kin of that past, her uncle, and most specifically her brother, he's betraying all of them. He is as good as stabbing John in the back. Okay, you know what's happening later. And Aya will not stand for it. What would her father have done with a deserter? Aya knows, so Aya does. Of course, unfortunately, Eddard Stark would most definitely frown on this. Firstly, he doesn't want his young daughter to have to kill, obviously, but he would also call it a dishonourable way to kill Darian. Still, Aya's working with what she's got. And I just like it as a connection to her and John. I think that's why I like it so much. It's just something to keep them both vaguely in the same universe, isn't it? And George, he toys with a different style of telling us that Aya is killed this time, waiting until she is back with Brusco and thumping some boots down. The boots of a dead man. Just like Owen the Oath will want after Giles Slint is killed. Again, John connections. She certainly isn't coy about it either. Valamogoulis, she thinks. Back in the House of Black and White, she goes through this whole physical process of stripping away Cat of the Canals and becoming no one once more. Yeah, sorry, you're not kidding anyone, are you? And to close the chapter, we find out some more about what she's been learning in her time at the temple. She starts becoming familiar with the use of poisons, some of which we've already seen in action. The Tears of Lys caused a great big kerfuffle. Some people called the War of the Five Kings, for example, when it killed John Aaron, whereas Sweet Sleep might become of more importance depending how much Peter Baelish insists on pumping Robin Aaron full of. And actually, it's interesting, because I've never connected that both father and son are victims of poison. I wrote out those two notes I didn't even realise I was talking about the same family here. Rereaders will know Poison will come into Aya's own arc as well, but she might be having a more important interaction with Poison sooner rather than later. We have to wonder if the Waif knew about that and did this particular lesson just to rub it in a bit. We also have the mention of Basilisk Blood, which Aya connects back to Weiss being killed by his own dog. So it's another behind-the-curtain moment for her. That wasn't magic, it was just knowledge that won the day back then. 
In the last Aya chapter, she was teaching the waif the common tongue, and apparently she seems to speak it fluently. So perhaps Aya gave her a good start, or perhaps the waif's origin story is actually based in Westeros and she could speak it all along. And speaking of that origin story, we get apparently her full background now. Or do we? Hmm. That whole story is a bit Cinderella-like, isn't it? Or do I just think that every time I hear, like, Wicked Stepmother? I think we can assume the too high price for the stepmother well i'm not going to relay the whole story for you here but i think we can assume that too high price for the stepmother was her own daughter as it seems that that was what the father was charged for the stepmother to die the faceless men have to get a new coat somehow i suppose and this seems as good a way as any but moving past that story we get onto Aya meeting with the kindly man and kind of not backing down over this what she's done with darren she just kind of stares him down and that part edard stark probably would be pretty proud of because damn ballsy but what does that earn her well well as you all know Aya wakes up blind at the very end of the chapter to close it to close off this whole arc what a cliffhanger i mean it comes out of left field doesn't it i think we knew something was going to happen i don't think anyone any first time readers imagined she would be blinded for this and of course we didn't know at that point if that site was ever going to come back so it's a pretty damn harsh cliffhanger there there's blowback for a good act i guess the kind of man he's been threatening all the way he has to eventually follow through on one of these threats both for Aya and for us otherwise he's gonna have no control over her it is confusing whether she is being punished or rewarded over Darren I will say that I don't think that's something you consider the first time you read I think it's quite you just like oh she's being punished she might be chucked out she might be left in this state we don't know but having read the whole series and seeing that she gets it back it becomes clearer this is actually part of the process this is like the next level so which is it is it punishment or reward I still lean towards punishment but I always think the kindly man, well, he tells us it is part of the process, but why would he reward her for remaining ire and not doing things the faceless man way? I suppose they brought it on earlier than usual, that's also mentioned later, and there was the possibility that this might be too much for her, leaving her blind forever, but again, maybe this is just a test to see how much she's willing to put up with, put it that way, and they're just like, okay, but we're going to be a bit harsher than usual for you because you have broken the rules. And then again, the fact that Darian had deserted and his life was now forfeit that only complicates the matter because he did deserve it by all the rules of the night's watch but then what does that mean to the faceless men again complicates the matter as for going blind in itself so much of Aya's arc is about the true seeing that Sirio told her about in king's landing she's seen secrets so much she's seen stuff that she's not even aware of in terms of its importance so i think it is purposely symbolic for her to lose her sight and now have to rely on others senses and working stuff out internally i think that is important perhaps this skill is going to be of use when i returns home and has to deal with glamours i'm talking about this true seeing as in maybe this is going to improve that true seeing when she gets her sight back she might already be well versed enough to be able to detect them but this whole again true seeing things might be the cherry on top now this could come in handy if she ever comes across jacken slash the alchemist ever again but more importantly if she heads in the direction of home and gets to john this could be very, very useful for dealing with Melisandre, or Mance even, if he's still around by then. There could be any number of glamours up there in that magical part of the world that I will see through. For all we know, this is what the Sea Lord was up to with Sirio, like with, his, with that story of the fat Tomcat. He does reside in a city full of faces, men, after all, so maybe he just wanted some kind of protection against glamours, against face changing. Again, that's a bit in-depth, but it's definitely possible. Either way, that is our goodbye for Aya in this chapter for this book. So we will have to wait until we're quite far into dance to see her again. Chapter 46, that's quite a while away. <sighs> Goodbye, Stark. So we've really got 
one more Stark chapter of this book. It's going to be coming next week's the longest chapter of the book with Sansa or Elaine, if you want to be technical. Overall, for this chapter, it's weird because it's a happy chapter for Aya where she has found a place in the world where she fits, but then it ends with murder in an alley and then horrific punishment for Aya. Or is it just the next step for Aya? It's quite difficult to get our heads around that ending, again, because we're not used to seeing Aya in a comfortable place, a happy place. And we have to taint it with this, yeah, the darkness that is always there. We've got to remember this isn't actually a happy place. As much as we might see, like seeing Aya smiling and uh, getting on with everyone, that's not really what she's there for. She's learning to kill. She's learning to do all these bad things. And we don't know what use that's going to be put to later. But we'll have to discuss with that more in dance. And especially we'll be able to have stronger links with her Mercy chapter after, which definitely has a lot of darkness in it. So we shall see. But farewell, Aya. For now, we will miss you. Let's move on to the next chapter, second chapter of the day with Samwell 4. So Sam's next chapter, not this one, is going to be his last. That's not such a big deal. We've really gotten used to saying goodbye to POVs in this book. Just, just done that with Aya. But that's until you remember Sam's next chapter is the last chapter, the final chapter of the book. We really are that close already. It's weird, I know. There we are. So let's head straight into this one. Sam, the king of new settings, is always in a different place, now finds himself with a new people he'll have obviously had zero contact with so far in his life. And really down in the Summer Islanders, got over to Horn Hill all that often in his youth. So new experiences abound, but before we get a chance to absorb that information, George lands the haymaker on us in his evilly subtle way. She had no scepter aboard her to lead them in the prayers of passing, so the task fell to Samuel Tarley somewhere off the sun-scorched southern coast of Dawn. He was a good man, he began, but as soon as he said the words, he knew that they were wrong. No, he was a great man. Nope, 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 nope. Put the book down, put it in the fridge. Yes, unfortunately, our dear old friend Eamon has passed, and we didn't even get to see him go. George just cruelly hits us over the head with it, four lines in, straight to his funeral rites, and Sam having to stand amongst strangers, kind and as awesome as they be, and remember, the cinnamon wind was mentioned, not just in Sam's earlier chapter, but also way back in Clash of Kings. So not just interesting, but also important because they do actually know what they're talking about in terms of Daenerys and dragons, etc. We're not relying on the rumours of the prologue anymore. We're getting concrete, uh, reliable sources, but we'll come back to that in a minute. Sam is, trying, is standing in front of these new people and trying to get across how amazing this old man was, how one of a kind he is. And Sam is obviously not exactly big on public speaking, but he really does come through when it's time to talk about his friend, Mace Draymond. But how best to get this long life across? He was a maester, he was a crow. That bit's easy, okay? He served for 12 Lord Commanders worth. We've got to get that longevity in, of course, that's got to be included. What about what came before? He was named for a dragon who burned bright but never wanted the throne. And this one was the same. He advised he didn't rule. And that's important, is the quote. When they offered him the crown, he told them they should give it to his younger brother. How many men would do that? Sam felt the tears welling in his eyes and knew he could not go on much longer. He's singular is the point that Sam is trying to make. It might, might not mean much to the assembled crew, but it does to Sam. Eamon's life could have been entirely different if he were more vain or more, more ambitious or if he just followed the company line. Instead, he dedicated that life to other people. There has been no one with his vast mix of experiences all wrapped up in decades and decades of of knowledge and just different viewpoints. He's, he's seen both ends of the world. And it's not a stretch, really, to name Eamon one of the most knowledgeable men who's ever lived in Westerosi history, not just in, in this bit, ever. Which makes Sam's ending 
even more heartbreaking. He was the blood of the dragon, but now his fire has gone out. He was Aemon Targaryen, and now his watch is ended. Ice and fire indeed, isn't it? There aren't many more brutal starts to chapters, I have to say, and we have to say goodbye to Aemon. Many people's favourite Targaryen, or even favourite character, and I would find it hard to disagree with you there. It's one of the more emotional parts of the series, I think, and obviously an offset to the violent deaths we normally see. We're, used, we're so used to those that this one almost kind of stings more. We're supposed to see things go out in a flash of uh, violence or anger or something like that, not just pass off into the night. That doesn't really happen very much. And Aemon, he suffers the reverse of a Targaryen funeral as well, just to really annoy us. Instead of being burnt, as his family likes to do, he is submerged in liquid and stuffed into a barrel. It's such a shame for one of our more dignified characters in general. Like I said at the top, I consider this the death of the book. Each volume has had at least one big death. There's Ned in Game, Renly in Clash, John is going to come next in Dance. You can really take your pick and storm, there's so many there to choose from. But this one is the biggest name to go down and feast, I think we'll have to agree. Now we start learning about this new crew, full of a people that really we haven't met properly yet either, even if we've had more contact than Sam. Right from the off, we discover they are kind of great, as they toast Aemon's life and has Sam's kind words translated. They revere the elderly and they celebrate their dead. That's just the first sign of many in this chapter that shows their rather unique and amazing approach to life. They are awesome characters, both collectively and individually, as we'll cover as we go here. It's really such a shame we get this very quick short blink of them their philosophy on life and death their philosophy on love and sex how they treat sam gilly and the baby is a refreshing bubble of positivity in this otherwise very harsh world i really hope we get to see more of them going forward even if that doesn't look too good at the moment and not to jump ahead here but it is a shame that no pov remains among them at the end of this book because it'd be great to watch them go back across the world of marwin i think we'd all like to be a fly on the wall on that trip with his duty done, Sam lets his misery take over, and it comes in the form of physical fatigue. He's been put to work in, in that physical regard as well, and don't forget we discussed earlier in the book how Sam, always painted as our least physical character, always winds up doing the most physical labour in his various settings. He nurses too late hopes about Old Town and the Maesters because he's always held those optimistic traits. That was him back in that second chapter, remember, his first at sea, looking into the dark clouds, wondering about what's going to happen. Well, the rough times have come. He's lost Darian. Right, well, meh, okay, sure. But now he's lost Aemon, his mentor, his friend. Luckily, Gilly is still here, and she comforts him wonderfully here at the beginning as he cries upon her shoulder. In general, this chapter will show a much improved Gilly, one who is feeling a lot better, even if that constant ache for a true child is obviously never going to leave her. Still, it's wonderful to see the improvement. She really interacts with the crew, with Sam. She's alive again, as we'll see. Though we've begun with his funeral, Aemon is still very much a character in this chapter as Sam fills us on on his final days via his memory. The first and probably most important is Aemon being revitalised again by Zondo's talk of dragons and Aemon's further musings on not just Daenerys, but Rhaegar too. No one ever looked for a girl, he said. It was a prince that was promised, not a princess. It's rather typical, unfortunately, for this society to naturally assume something this important would concern a male. But I will say... I eat up absolutely any information we get on Rhaegar being aware of and trying to work towards a certain prophecy because it's not like we ever get a lot of information, is it? I love this passage because it almost confirms that both Aemon and Rhaegar discussed and kind of maybe double teamed these prophecies, maybe worked together to make sure they came true, whether that was a, with an eye towards saving the world or saving their own house or both. 
We've had this idea of them being in cahoots right since Game of Thrones, and I really, really do find it thrilling, especially when we get Ted bits like this. Unfortunately, probably aren't going to get many more of those, but I'm sure we're all hopeful. Specifically interesting is that Rhaegar became aware of the prophecy likely pertaining to him in his youth. Now, is it youth as a boy or as a teen, or what? We won't delve too much into his personal history here because you all know it, but we also all know the story of him suddenly demanding a sword and always looking through scrolls and such. Then he apparently got into his head there was his son the prophecy meant, not him, so there's a change in direction there. Was it just the comet that did that during Aegon's birth, or conception, I can't remember which one it is now, or something more? And these are the details we really do hunger for. But back to Daenerys, because unfortunately those details aren't forthcoming, who Aemon truly focuses on now. Daenerys is the one. Born amid salt and smoke. The dragons prove it. Well, he's not wrong about the dragons, are they? They are pretty strong, irrefutable evidence. But we also have the salt and smoke line, which obviously crosses over into the Azor High prophecy, and a larger part of why the religion of the law will begin championing Daenerys in dance. Even before this, we've all placed Daenerys's two births on Dragonstone and the Dothraki Sea as an explanation for that term. But this is really just binding it all together now. All these things that we've learned of in such different places and at different times are finally being grouped up together for this larger goal of obviously the end that we're, we are working towards. To be honest, th that isn't even the best part of it. It's just this pure invigoration Eamon has at the discussion. Just talking of her seemed to make him stronger. I must go to her. I must. Would that I was even ten years younger. It's wonderful and also bittersweet to see. This mistranslation about dragons being neither male or female feels like one of the tentpole moments we don't know is a tentpole moment just yet. When it's all said and done, may even by the end of Winds, I think we'll be looking back and thinking, oh, this is where it all starts to click, this is where we first get this idea that is going to be important later on. Besides, I like anything that supports Daenerys as the one we should all be paying attention to, though I am a huge supporter of the idea that George is never going to give us a definitive answer on who Azor Ahai is, or who the champion is, or the chosen one, or whatever you want to call it. I'm actually a big proponent of the the idea that Azor Ahai is many people, that it's going to be a team effort to save the world here, that everyone's got a different role, whether that's Stannis, or Jon, or Daenerys, or Aya, or Santa, or Bran, whatever you like. I think it comes just from playing team sports, I just like that idea more, I like that approach. Sam next fills in the gaps of how they actually got onto the ship, the Cinnamon Wind, how he parted with his sword, and the the books that were going to the citadel and we have to immediately like Kahuru Mo the captain for accepting the books as payment while still intending them to get to the maesters just with a bit of profit I like him in the same way we have to admire Sam for absolutely refusing to sell Eamon's chain the heartbreak of that might have killed the old man on its own his strength and invigoration apparently lasted the length of the narrow sea but by the time they were swinging back towards dawn Eamon was back to being realistic even if Sam refused to join him in that Cruelly, Aemon knew he wouldn't reach Daenerys, so he's not going to reach his ultimate goal. Instead, he settles for thinking how he can still affect the world while he can, and that comes via Sam, as he tries to instill in his steward the need to convince the maesters of the situation up north with the others. Aemon seems to think he would have a difficult enough time, even if he did make it, due to it being so long since he was last there, no one cares about him anymore. Though we've not really gotten a chance to see yet, I think we'd all guess Sam will have very similar dif difficulties convincing anyone of the truth, especially as news of both young Griff and Daenerys becomes more and more solid. Dragons on your doorstep are just so much more interesting than whispers of shadows at the end of the world. Aemon next concentrates on Stannis and Minasandra's version of the prophecy, which he is now convinced is wrong. 
though he actually, or really was, if you'll recall his scepticism of Lightbringer's lack of heat, as he recalls himself here. Know who has a lot of heat? Daenerys. There's quite a lot to unpack, actually, in this long paragraph. First, we learn the specifics of the Baratheon descendants from the Targaryens through Rael. So Stannis' grandmother is Aemon's niece. Always so weird to think about how they're related, yet soon are so different. They've been in the same room before and never referenced it, as we talked about during Storm. And it also just makes you realise how old Aemon is. His niece is Stannis' grandmother. Well, this connection is obviously old news now for us with the world book, etc, etc. But it's pretty big in terms of reading the series for the first time. I allowed myself to hope. Perhaps I wanted to. We all deceive ourselves when we want to believe. Melisandre, most of all, I think. I have a strong suspicion that by the end of the series, we'll look back on this quote and see how Aemon completely has Melisandre sussed from the beginning. But anyway, it's so very human of him, even with all his knowledge, to have just wanted to believe what's convenient, what sounds better. It's just a better alternative than believing your saviour died beneath Robert Baratheon's Warhammer. So who can blame him for wanting to say, no, 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 that wasn't the real one, there's someone else out there, the end of the world isn't coming. I think we would all be very similar. But now he's correcting himself. He says the false light, essentially meaning Stannis, will only lead to the realm of dark. I don't think Aemon is listing Stannis as a bad man here who would intentionally do such, but he's been as misguided as the rest of them. To be honest, I can buy either possibility. I'm a big believer Stannis will be broken eventually by trying to do the right thing, only to be cast aside again in the north. Or that his or Melisandre's believed right thing will actually play into their enemy hand or some such, some similar situation. For all these years I've lingered, waiting, watching, and now that the day has dawned, I'm too old. I am dying, Sam. There's long-lasting hurt in Eamon's words of prepping for a whole lifetime for this one role, thinking a big day is coming, and then being too old when it finally does come around. It makes me think of Ned not being able to be there for his kids, and I doubt it's the last time we'll have this sentiment of what people are supposed to do and then are not allowed to do by fate. Let's compare it back to Eamon's original telling of John about how he chose duty over his house. It's poignant considering Sam's conundrums later in this chapter in terms of duty and what he actually wants to do. Would Eamon give that advice again to John, knowing what he knows now? Or will it turn out there are some things bigger than duty? Certainly seems to be heading that way again for Sam and for John also. And unfortunately we can't ask Darian anymore, but he would definitely agree. Or maybe it is still duty by serving Daenerys as you can frame it as guarding the realms of men by looking after the one who's supposed to save you all. But then if that's allowed, if you can bend the, the Night's Watch vows that much, there's going to be some pretty big philosophical arguments over obeying orders once Daenerys does come north, hopefully. We have to make pretty big connections to the Darien I just killed, given that Aemon mentions the old Darien. We have to make some big connections to the Darien that I just killed, given that Aemon mentions old Darien here, his brother, who, not the same name, but very similar. And he also like the drink, as present Darian does, if you can keep up with me here, and present Sam, who's also taking an unofficial wife, like Darian did. Now, I think we can agree Sam is doing it with a much bigger presence of doing the right thing, slash what's come natural, as opposed to Darian just disobeying direct orders and leaving teammates to freeze and starve. But this entire passage from Eamon is very emotional as he considers the end of his life and thinks about Egg and Darian and his sisters. Sorry, Arian, no deathbed shouts for you. That makes sense, I think. We can all agree with that one. In fact, one thing we can pick out is at the beginning of this passage, Eamon says, The prophecy. My brother's dream. And that's interesting. Was there a specific dream that persuaded either Eamon or Rhaegar, or both, about parts of the prophecy? Maybe even the whole of it? 
I don't believe that gets suggested again, though, though I could be wrong. You're always welcome to correct me. Eamon also doesn't tell us which brother. You'd assume Darien, who was the one who supposedly had visions, but Egg also became more and more obsessed with dragons and ancient spells and the such in his later life, so who's to say he was not the one? We just don't know, but we definitely want to find out. Let's kind of tuck that away for future uh, writings from George, hopefully. Unfortunately, everything we get from Eamon after this is even murkier. His talk was all a jumble. He spoke of dreams and never named the dreamer, of a glass candle that could not be lit, and eggs that would not hatch. He said the Sphinx was the riddle, not the Riddler, whatever that meant. The dragon must have three heads, he wailed, but I am too old and frail to be one of them. So we're really getting smothered by all this information. It's still the beginning of the chapter in here. The dragon with three heads is now rearing its, well, you know, showing how all these prophecies are now mixing in together and are probably really trying to say the same thing. It's also just brutal to see Eamon want to be with Daenerys so much while knowing he can't. Just imagine the sheer wealth of knowledge he could have given her. It would honestly be a complete game changer for Danny Lark for the fate of the world probably. It would be enough to have him as general counsel on how to deal with the world and armies and kings and subjects and everything else. That, she definitely needs that as well. But the Aemon specific knowledge of their family history of dragons and magic and prophecies of knowledge that might not exist anywhere else in the world apart from his own head would have been beyond priceless. Like I said, it really does probably change the fate of the world if Eamon had got to her. It might be our loudest alas alarm ever. We're also getting big prologue callbacks now with talk of glass candles and sphinx riddles. I'll admit, the sphinx part of Eamon's ramblings have always had me confused. I've never really got through what that means. It's going to come back in Sam's next chapter and at the end of the book, obviously. This whole thing is just a big tease from George, if we're honest. Does Eamon know something about glass candles that we don't know? Or is he just thinking back on the Citadel's now obsolete test? Does he know of other unhatched eggs somewhere, or is he just remembering his brother? We don't know. Still, George does make up for it by making the final-ish memory of Eamon come from Gilly, of him gently holding the baby, supporting new life as he always did, of being happy and laughing. So, thank you for including that, George. Back in the present, Sam still searches for some reasoning, first turning his blame on John sending Eamon out into the world at his age and you do have to wonder if Eamon could have lived at the wall for another 10 years as Sam suggests because we certainly hope Danny will be there within 10 years and they could have finally met but Gilly who has more reason to hate John than anyone else in the world lays out the logic for Sam that John had to do this or Eamon might burn same as Mance's son this is what we were talking about earlier on with Gilly getting better she can now finally talk about what's been done to her and her son I don't think this is ever something you can ever make peace with, obviously, but it definitely has that vibe. Besides, Gilly keeps being awesome by suggesting they name Mance's son after our now gone maester. Eamon Steelsong will be his name when he turns two. That's a pretty great name. A warrior's name. The boy was Mance Raider's son and Craster's grandson after all. Now, I just mentioned this because it jumps out to me. It always does when I read this chapter because it seems a pretty obvious mistake. This baby has as much relation to Craster as it does to Sam. It's not Gilly's child, it's nothing to do with Craster, it's Mance's child and Dallas' child. So is it Sam slash George just getting it wrong in the moment, or because he'll now be raised by Gilly, is he just lumping them together in terms of adoptive family? It doesn't really matter, I'm just pointing it out. Next, we learn a bit more about Koja Mo. I'm going to go with that <laughs> pronunciation. The captain's daughter, who has already been mentioned a few times, and she sounds great on multiple fronts. 
She captains her own red archers, shoots great herself with a golden heart bow, and best of all, she seems to be responsible for bringing Gilly out of her shell. Plus, she loves little Steel Song here. Gilly is pretty damn short on non-relative friends for her life, so this is yet another milestone past for her. We get some more drinking to Eamon and to the crew, and that winds up with Sam and Gilly below deck, three sheets, or six cups, to the wind. And after watching an incredibly romantic sunset, they end up... Well, I think you guess where. He broke off the kiss long enough to say, we can't. But Gilly said, we can, and covered his mouth of her own again. Like with John back when he was first with Egret, guilt creeps in, which Sam is definitely no stranger to, is he? The words, the oaths, his duty, all come flooding in, and then get rushed straight back out again as lust and alcohol take over. Sam obviously blames himself, he compares himself to Darian and all these other unfair things, but his affection for Gilly and hers for him is just too powerful, and away they go. Considering the horrors both of these people have been through both recently and throughout their lives, you just have to be glad they found each other in this way, even if it's just for just once, who knows. At the end, Gilly claims this act makes her Sam's wife, obviously a layover from Craster's teachings, so yikes to that, but also that really sets off Sam because now he's definitely comparing himself to Darian and the guilt comes right on back. So much so, he thinks he should just gum jump overboard. That's how bad his shame is. But the lesson of the Summer Islanders, which we get some more of here, with their own lovemaking and the answering death of life, well, it's lost on Sam for the moment, unfortunately. It's probably a good thing he's put to work the next day instead of just being allowed to wallow, but still, shame squeezes in there. After much moping, Kojimo comes to the rescue again. I honoured your dead and the gods who made you both. Zondo did the same. I had the child, else I would have would have been with him. All you Westerosi make a shame of loving. There is no shame in loving. If your septons say there is, your seven gods must be demons. In the isles we know better. Our gods gave us legs to run with, noses to smell with, hands to touch and feel. The basic lesson here is, enjoy your life while you can, Sam. Appreciate it for what it is. This might be really well-timed advice, because this might actually genuinely be the peak of Sam's life here with Gilly and thinking about Eamon. It's a lesson that's obviously got through to Gilly, as Kojimo tells us she is aware she will soon lose Sam as she's lost everything else in her world, so she just wants to seize him while he while she can. To be even more blunt, Kojimo basically tells Sam to either get over himself and go to Gilly, or jump off the ship. Ever one for orders, Sam does relent and faces his lady love. Again, he resorts to the O's, he says he cannot have a wife, but Gilly responds with the attitude that those trues will sit in front of weirwood trees. In the forest, they see all. But there are no trees here, only water, Sam only water. I've always been slightly confused about this as an ending line and what it represents. Is it saying that they can't be seen by weirwoods and maybe characters like Bloodraven? That they are rushing towards another opposite magical place, one that has glass candles that could still be watching them? Or is it just representative of Sam being far away from where his vows were sworn and therefore allowed to blur the lines a little bit? Stodgy ground, again, just Asterian. Either way, this is a pretty beautiful chapter. Emotional, absolutely. It's tough to say goodbye to someone as beloved as Eamon, but the goodbye he gets, the honouring by the crew and Sam, the celebration of his life, but the fervent living of yet more life, that's a real good time. I love the Summer Islanders' view and attitude, and these are quality characters, like we say. Considering the difficulties Sam is headed for, even if we're not considering the possibilities of Euron, we really have to soak up this little bubble while we can. And this is a note for next time, really, but I'll slip it in at the end here. There is a theory of the Cinnamon crew working for Marwyn. You'll remember at the end, we're going to come to this later, he does rush off immediately and jumps on the ship. He knows it was there, it knows he will take him, 
So is that confidence or pre-planning or the advantage of having a glass candle? We don't know. Also, having thought about it, does that mean that Marwyn is also taking Eamon's corpse with him to Daenerys? I've always wondered what happens to that, and I don't think it gets mentioned. But I guess we'll find out in Sam's next and final chapter in a couple of weeks, but hmm, yeah, let's keep an eye out. So we'll see Sam again in the end of the book, the very end. For now, let's move on to our third chapter of the day with Cersei 8. And we are definitely picking up steam now. Only three Cersei chapters remain, and only two of them with the freedom of the city available to her. So today's chapter goes up and down as the King's Landing of Cersei's making begins to fall apart entirely, seam by seam. It starts with what should be a victory, the supposed news of Loras's death, but she can't glean any satisfaction from that, and gets more and more frustrated as all her ploys come undone. Hence, to drag herself back up to some kind of satisfaction, she puts the final part of her Osney Marjorie plan into place and essentially locks the door on her own freedom, even if she doesn't know it yet. This is where she can officially wave goodbye to being the queen, which is funny considering this is the chapter we get our best explanation of why she's always so concerned about losing that position, the prophecy. We actually really get to that today. The first page puts us right into that mindset of loss and things not being how Cersei wants them as the opening paragraph tells of a rainy King's Landing covered in clouds where the sun cannot make an appearance and Cersei's day apparently not faring much better. Though note, we do get an early mention of the bluebird singing for Marjorie, so note that down for later. But that changes when Orane Waters comes in on the tide and brings Cersei the exact news she's been hoping for. In fact, it's even better than she dared hope at all. In her last chapter, she was thinking she'd either gain Dragonstone or have Loras die. And it turns out, both are true. But Arrain starts with the broader political news first. Dragonstone has fallen. Yes, mighty Dragonstone that burns so bright in our memory, despite it already being ages since we've been there, is now apparently in Lannister hands, surely leaving a bitter taste in the mouth for most of us. Cersei actually does a good job of not having a big overreaction and keeps it cool at this first bit of news. So much so I had to go back and check this wasn't being told to her in court, but no, she is just in her solar and just isn't reacting too much. Crucially, now that we are without Victorian or Aeron POVs, Cersei's updates service our own updates for what Euron is up to. And we get it here from Cersei's inner thoughts. As Marjorie foretold, the Shield Islands were not enough. The Ironborn have gone up the Manda into the heart of the country and have also now gone south and overwhelmed the Wedwines down at the Arbor, which is a major, major blow to the production of food, wine and the economy of southern Westeros. From there, he is even sending ships towards Old Town, so we're now really getting that sense of impending doom of something bad happening. I wouldn't be surprised if first-time readers believed we might see the Old Town attack to close out this very book. It would make sense from a structural standpoint. We started in Old Town, we can finish in Old Town. And as it turns out, we will, even if we don't get that that particular ending and we know sam is getting nearer and nearer so it's great chapter sequencing from george in terms of building that tension regardless of when it comes cersei's reports tell us euron has been successful in keeping his iron together after sending vitarian off they've apparently bought back into his shtick now he set his sights a bit closer to home and we can only imagine the horror he's implementing around the southwestern coast even without the inclusion of sam his coming to old town should worry us greatly we know the heaps of knowledge contained there. We know the sheer amount of human life there. If he can bring such violence and despair as we've already seen, what's he going to do with a place like that? It is very, very worrying indeed. At least it is satisfying to see Cersei privately admit the Ironborn problem is dire when she went so far to minimise it previously in front of Marjorie and the others. And she remembers it's Balon's brother this time, not his son. So that's good. 
We want details on Dragonstone, though, even while Cersei's having this little side act about the Ironborn. Exactly how did this mighty fortress fall? We want to know. We want to know the details. Arrain obliges us, in a general sense, with information on Loras's tactics. Here it is. He turned what could have been a bloodless victory into a slaughter. A thousand men are dead, or near enough to make no matter. Most of them are our own, and not just common men, your grace, but knights and young lords, the best and the bravest. And Sir Loras himself? He will make a thousand and one. So first things first, that's a thousand of Cersei's men. The ones she is, has so little of, gone. The city is weakened further, as we've said a million times before. I believe 2,000 men were sent originally, so that's half the entire force spent on overwhelming a castle that, to be honest, didn't need to be taken quickly at all. It did in the sense of freeing up the red wine ships, that's true, but Cersei could have ordered that to go ahead anyway without the big push on Dragonstone. She only refrained from doing so to piss off the Tyrells and then had Loras's insistence drop into her lap. So in many ways, Cersei sent a 1,000 men to their deaths just to rid herself of Loras. Now that... Okay, caveat. That's all true as presented to us here, but as we discussed last week, we really don't know at all. Are those thousand men dead or not? Is Loras bleeding to death as we speak? We don't know. As I said previously, this might be the best mystery in the series that is dead 50-50 in terms of the likely outcome. I personally want Loras to be alive and searching Dragonstone for whatever means, but does that mean there was a successful assault? Or was it an easy one with less than a thousand deaths? Did Loras make some connection with Roland Storm as we questioned last week? Who can say? For now, let's take Orain on his word and call it as we see it. A monumental cock-up of a campaign. A thousand men lost for a castle that really doesn't swing the needle at all on your current situation. Plus the loss of your best Kingsguard, even if Cersei will never see it that way or admit it. But what about how everyone else will see it? That's what we deal with next as Cersei quickly moves from overall political picture to inner delight at Loras's injuries. She is aware enough, finally, to see how the city loves the Tyrells as she remembers Loras departing, particularly in terms of young women. That greatly frustrates her too, no doubt because of her extreme jealousy and belief that all love should be coming her way just because. To offset that memory, she has Orain tell her all the gruesome details, which we'll cover in a minute, not once, but twice, just so she can get some sick pleasure out of it. But that's not all. She also wants to tell Marjorie herself so she can enjoy watching the girl's heartbreak. Yeah, yeah, just awful and creepy. After thinking that Orane doesn't actually resemble Rhaegar as much as she once thought, which is good because he won't be around that much longer, Cersei heads straight off to see her daughter-in-law and make her cry. Marjorie is trying to puzzle out some new game from Volantis with her cousins when Cersei walks in. Now, are we to assume this is Stavas? I don't think it's been mentioned in King's Landing before, but apparently it's well established in Dawn, so maybe Marjorie can have a game against... Ariane, or Fae Hagon when he comes. That would be an interesting scene, I think you'd agree. Cersei puts on her sweetest, friendliest voice as she relates the tale to Marjorie, because we all know that makes it a thousand times worse when we're in the presence of true evil. Apparently, apparently, Roland Storm refused single combat with Loras, forcing this all-out assault that our Knight of Flowers was brave enough to lead himself. But however brave, the injuries soon started piling up, and we know Cersei enjoys her listing of them. A quarrel on his thigh and shoulder, which sounds eerily similar to Aerys Oakheart's cho charge toward Arya Hotar, plus some broken ribs from a mace. You get the sense Cersei would have been quite annoyed if someone had just felled him in one quick cut. That's not nearly enjoyable enough. Tell me, said Marjorie. I command it. Command it? Cersei paused a moment, then decided she would let that pass. Surely taking even more pleasure in the telling after having yet another moment of being offended at Marjorie's choice of words, Cersei tells of Loras receiving perhaps the most painful fate you can in a battle, 
being covered with boiling oil. This is pretty fitting as the final injury for Loris Tyrell, whether we believe it's what happened or not. Aside from the excruciating pain and the likely long time it takes to actually die from this, he also ensures the most heartbreak for Marjorie and co. The whole Tyrell deal is about beauty and optics. Loris is famous, like his sister, for his near-perfect looks. Even if he were to survive, that will now surely be taken from him. He will be forever changed, a petal that doesn't look quite right on the rose. It doesn't fit them like the image. Knights are supposed to be cut down by another hero's magical sword, or take an arrow in their heart. They aren't supposed to lie slowly crisping and bubbling. So that's a bit of extra pain there for the family. But it's also fitting because it, it seems if you want to take Dragonstone, you will end up burned. Again, apparently. This is alleged. Marjorie's reaction is as, as Cersei drew it up herself. Not just the tears, but she's so distraught that there's no political show anymore. There's no playing of the game. She's just pissed. She's just upset. And even better, she refuses to accept it. Dying is not dead. I only want to spare you. I know what you want. Get out. That breaking of the facade is really what makes Cersei feel like a winner. It's what she feels gives her the upper hand. And we can see how she honestly feels like this is deserved revenge for Joffrey. Again, this news of a dying Kingsguard member and a thousand soldiers dead beside him. Honestly, Cersei changes, like views it, frames it as her biggest win of the book. If Lord Tywin could see me now, he would know he had his heir. An heir worthy of the rock. Her celebrations are not shared with Taina Merriweather. Though Cersei doesn't focus on it, Taina is not in her bed this time around. Now, is that because she's generally trying to avoid Cersei's bed as much as possible after what happened in Cersei's last chapter? Or is she with Marjorie because the one she really cares about actually needs her? Is Marjorie now making quick plans to secure herself with Loras plus her father gone? Or has Taina sensed this will be a weak moment for the Tyrells and one she could potentially exploit? All seem equally possible. She will appear in a moment, explaining she was indeed with Marjorie, listening to her plans. But as for true motives, we're left as close as ever. George uses the scenery to go in tandem with Cersei's mood again, as she thinks how she can never be blamed for Loras, while it continues to wound the Tyrells more and more. Prior to the news, King's Landing was a gloomy, rainy place. After the news, the dawn is the prettiest that Cersei had seen in years, apparently. In years! That's how happy this news makes her. It's actually funny that this is the lone time Cersei does bother to think about optics and proper form and all that, raising a statue and lighting candles and being polite. If she'd been able to apply this effort the whole time, the situation would be very, very different than King's Landing. Instead, she can only include it as part of her essential boasting. But as so many of us know, pride comes before the fall. We really do get the sense George is setting us up for something big here, especially when Cersei chooses now to show off her new crown. It even seems like the day will get better when there's the possibility of Tyrion's head being delivered finally. If it's ever going to happen, today's the day, right? But as keen as Cersei is to still hand over lordships and land, she's ultimately disappointed. This seventh head is not Tyrion's either, and instead we have just another pointless death. And just imagine how many are actually killed and never even delivered to Cersei. The larger point of the passage is probably to have the Tyroshi who brings the head, use the word Valonqar, so we can have Cersei think back on the prophecy a bit later on. For his troubles, the Tyroshi is given to Kyburn, yet another victim of those who are trying to help Cersei, although for their own gain, of course. She really takes a lot of pleasure in the idea of this man being hurt. She's getting worse and worse for that as we go. The poisonous sweetness, George calls it. Doesn't enter her mind this might dissuade others from coming forward, of course. No. Finances, apparently, always the answer. The free informers provide nothing more for Cersei, but do give her some connections to smile over, as a hermit in the Riverlands is mentioned, one who lives on a haunted hill. 
We already know that to be the ghost of High Heart that I met in the storm, while we can assume the one in the Mother's Show in Bravos is another that I will meet later on. So the wind is out from Cersei's victorious sails a bit as she admits defeat and heads to court, again comparing herself to Robert, when she admits how tedious it all is, and she does that again in a moment when dealing with a Jalabarzo. Interestingly, Taina tries to persuade her to bunk off and go and do something else, perhaps dress as small folk or have a stellar wizard turn them into men for the night. If nothing else, Taina is definitely perceptive about what was going through the Queen's mind that night they shared in bed recently. As readers, our time in King's Landing has taught us to be suspicious and cynical about basically everything. So why is Taina now suggesting they go off into the city? Is this a suggestion for Marjorie to get Cersei out of court so she can get Tommen to decree something or something else that needs to be done without Cersei's attention? Could she have even been planning to have Cersei murdered down in the city without her guards? Revenge for the brother who would never have gone if Cersei had given the correct order in the first place. Far-fetched perhaps, but definitely not outside the realm of possibility in this city. Though it might be boring, Cersei sails through the first of those petitioning her at court. Jalabar is easy. Then she tells some merchants to pay their debts to the Iron Bank, not clicking that she has refused to do the same. We have Helene of the Alchemists raising the possibility of dragon eggs coming into their position, which is interesting for us all. But most importantly, we have some warriors' sons actually being presented, with their striped sword belts and their kite shields. A hundred knights have turned up already, apparently. Just knights, mind you, with more coming every day. Who would have thought the realm contained so many of them, Cersei thinks. Well, most of us, Cersei, but not you. Still, she does not seem to click what a problem this could be if their numbers keep swelling in this manner, instead focusing on the fact that Lancel has returned to the city. At least she is smart enough to know what an issue that could represent. That bad news is enough to turn her mood and mind once more, for when Pycelle claims Giles Rosby is soon going to finally succumb to his cough, Cersei starts insisting it must be an assassination attempt. You will return to Lord Giles and inform him that he does not have my leave to die. Classic line, everyone likes that line. Pycelle is nonplussed once more at the lack of logic and how Cersei is massively jumping to conclusions here with zero evidence. But more so, it's about her wanting absolute power over everything and everyone. She doesn't want her big win spoiled by any losses, however minor, to the Tyrells. After court, while she's dining with Tommen, we get the next level of her son's little rebellion arc that we've seen throughout the book. Tommen hasn't been around for the last couple of chapters, so Cersei makes up for it here when she lets her tongue slip. For half a groat, I'd gladly have her tongue torn out. Don't you say that, Tommen shouted suddenly, his round little face turning red. You leave her tongue alone. Don't you touch her. I'm the king, not you. She stared at him, incredulous. What did you say? As before, it's clear Marjorie has continued with her pushing Tommen to take more power in order to improve her own share while lessening Cersei's. Perhaps she's even put an emphasis on that with this news of Loras. Either way, Tommen is clearly in an emotional state with the news of his friend, whom he has quite few of, let's remember, and Cersei suggesting further violence against that family, against his own wife, and it's too much for him. Like his last outburst, it comes back to this argument of who is the king. Tommen knows in his youthful, basic way that he is king, and that outranks everybody else at the end of the day. Yes, he's a child, and he does what he's told because he's a good boy, but he is the king. So if there's tongues to be torn out, he gets to pick them. He knows Joffrey used to do it, he's probably got a solid inkling of what Cersei gets up to as well. And of course, the main thing is that he's right. He does, or will, outrank Cersei. He does matter more than her. Unsurprisingly, she doesn't react well to that idea. Perhaps we should be happy she doesn't take her rage out on the boy himself. Okay, We know what a threat to her power means to Cersei. It is the very worst of ideas. Instead, she goes all terrible parent again, like at the beginning of the book, by dragging Tommen by his ear and making him inflict horrible violence on his whipping boy. 
Now, having a whipping boy is barbaric enough in itself, but now Tommen, our poor, sweet, innocent Tommen, is being made to do the whipping. This poor child is being made to abuse another child. Barbaric is not the word. This really doesn't get followed up on in the series so far. We don't know the psychological emotional toll or the physical for poor Pate and note that, pro note that prologue connection again. This has to be pretty high on Cersei's crime list. She's tired. She doesn't want to explain to Tommen. She doesn't want to win him back. She just wants to prove that she is the one in charge, even if it means a child being beaten and threatened with having his tongue removed and making Tommen complicit in it. I really, really hope this does not stick with him, considering all the terrible issues he's had to put up with already in his life. I do think this might be maybe Cersei's cruelest act. It's a real tough conversation because there are a lot, but this might be the sickest. So this most victorious of days doesn't feel all that great. Isn't that strange? Again, George falls back on his scenery to match the mood. Cersei opened the window for a breath of air and found that the clouds had rolled back in to hide the stars. Yes, what is supposed to be a shiny night is now gloomy once more. But Cersei tries to deflect her own disappointment by thinking at least everyone else is more miserable. Marjorie, Loris, Felice down in the dungeons. Nope, wait, don't think about that because that was a really stupid, simply cruel move. And now her mother Lady Tanda has died as well, making Bronn even more powerful. But all of that is okay, we can handle all of it because Marjorie is upset. When I kissed her cheek, I could taste the salt of her tears. That's a good enough day for, for Cersei, as long as it includes that, doesn't matter what else is happening. As she drifts to sleep, considering the woman she believes is the younger one destined to bring her down, Cersei dreams of the prophecy that first made her aware of such. After drips and drabs coming through the first seven Cersei chapters, we now get the full story out of her for the first time. Every character has events in their past they find so hard to move on from, especially the last of children. Cersei's got a few to choose from, with the death of her mother or marriage to Robert, but we can immediately see how this thing has eaten away at her over time. It's a dream of mist and shadows, one where she urges three foolish girls, an inversion on the three wise men idea, to turn back. Riri-readers all know the prophecies of Maggie the Frog. We've been referring to them all through this Riri project, but it's still fun to see them laid out like this now. Almost straight away comes the younger and more beautiful part, the one that Cersei tends to focus on the most because, again, she does not want anyone coming for her power or position. Quick as you like, Cersei's three questions are gone, but for reasons only known to her, Maggie the Frog chooses to go a little further. Gold shall be their crowns and gold their shrouds, she said, and when your tears have drowned you, the Valencar shall wrap his hands around your pale white throat and choke the life from you. I don't think this requires much analysis, does it? We've all been pretty set on this for a while now. For the children, Joffrey is already gone and it doesn't look great for Tommen or Marcella, even if I'll never quite give up hope for them. Whereas the choking thing, well, we've discussed a thousand times how we all think that's Jamie. Still, it's a lot better than the news Malara Heatherspoon receives, isn't it? As for their other companion, Jane Farman, this is the only Farman we ever actually meet, and we actually don't even meet her, do we? This is a dream. It seems surreal for those of us who have read Fire and Blood, but Farman only appears five times in the whole series. Once in Storm, then all in this chapter, and that's it. And Jane's not even present for long. She flees, flees at the right at the beginning, and Cersei considers that wise. Present Cersei, that is. She's actually pretty humble about this whole thing. It's not often she admits a mistake. On waking, the dream has obviously gone to Cersei, so much so she even demands to see Pycelle and asks for a sleeping potion. Even as she does so, she insults his age and calls him a cretin. In not occurring, maybe she shouldn't say such things to a man about to prepare a drink for her. Come on, Cersei. Next morning, with a clearly sad Tommen, she thinks this. No harm will ever come to Tommen whilst I still live. She would kill half the lords in Westeros and all the common people if that was what it took to keep him safe. 
Obviously, it doesn't occur to her the harm she herself is already doing to her son with this pate whipping business, but the second part of the sentence might also be a huge foreshadowing hint. There's a lot of fans who believe Cersei is going to burn half the city down or get everyone killed in some other fashion. Queen of the Ashes mentality is really showing through again. While talking with Kyburn, it's clear that Cersei is worried. Worried about Tyrion again, this time via Bronn. Worried about Marjorie. The victory of Loras did not taste sweet enough, and now, mixed with the dream, everything seems so much worse. So she needs to go the extra mile, and though it's Kyburn who provides the push to murder being the only true option to put Cersei's mind at rest, though we as readers quickly point out that Cersei doesn't even consider the fact she's got the young queen's identity wrong. She doesn't think of Sansa, and to be fair, she has no reason to think of Daenerys or Arianne as we do. But even with all that, with Kyburn's extra push, it's not exactly a large leap Cersei has to make here. Marjorie needs to be dealt with finally and soon. There's no Jamie though, no way to send a quick cat's ball out of a knife. Instead, she thinks to Marjorie's guards and lovers. Hence, she comes back to the kettlebacks once more. This time, it is Osney she wants for the job, as she puts in motion the last thing the High Sparrow finally needs to bring her down. Hmm. Starts well, ends very, very bad, even if Cersei does not imagine that. Okay, that is the end of chapter 3, and to be honest, we're going to leave it there, because I want to get to chapter 4. This is one I've been looking forward to since we started this project, certainly since we started this book. I can't really describe it. So I think it's probably best if we just go for it. One, two, three, finally, Brienne Seven. So settle in, my fellow green folks, because we're about to be treated to one of the very best chapters in all A Song of Ice and Fire. It's actually a really big undertaking, I'll admit. I think this is the kind of chapter that defies true analysis, although plenty of people have done more than commendable efforts in the past. But some moments are just too emotional, too pure in their thematics to really pull apart and look at. Some moments just have to be felt, and Brienne's decision towards the end of this chapter is definitely one of those. Now we'll give it a good go anyway, but there's really nothing that can be said that will do justice to this as a moment in the books. It's the ultimate for so many themes that have been so prevalent throughout knighthood, the protection of innocence, the protection of children, what to do in the face of evil or overwhelming odds, good versus evil itself. We've really got it all here as we enter what is now clearly the end of the book. We've had big moments, sure, especially ones that can be identified thanks to a reread, but this is the first real dramatic flair moment of a Feast for Crows that I think you'd expect to find at a close of the book. This is Feast's Blackwater, Storm's Tyrion moment, or John, take your pick. This is where it all starts getting very, very serious. And it's where Brienne's journey ends, or at least the part of it where she's choosing her own steps. All of her journey, all of the talk of oaths and doing the right thing, it all leads to this, where Brienne does the ultimate right thing and very nearly pays the ultimate price. All the hardships she's already paid, all the funny looks and the threats, everything at the whispers with Dick Crab, everything where all Brienne has been trying to do is protect innocent children has led her here, where she can finally protect some innocent children. If there is such a thing as fate, I think we've just found it. And she's not alone in that endeavour. Another key part of Brienne's arc, which often gets referenced as there to show us the devastation of war, is witnessing the good that still exists in the world. And this is perhaps the best example of that, as we finally discover Lady Stoneheart's brotherhood does still have some interest in the protection of small folk and isn't purely on a murderous rampage, although we'll discuss that more in a minute. And more importantly, it's been left to two essential children in Gendry and Willow to act as the carers and parents of all these orphans, the ultimate products of war. And that's all because of Aya's efforts in Storm. Great connection there. Here, I will admit, as I believe I did in Storm, 
that on my last reread, I got super confused about what inn we were in, if you get me. If you'd asked me before, I would have said this happened back at the inn where we left Hot Pie and Brienne and Jamie went to at the beginning of Storm. It only occurred to me on my last read, just before this one, that this was in fact the inn at the crossroads we're talking about here. The one that Aya freed up from evil, kind of, to allow Gendry and the Brotherhood to establish this country orphanage. The connections by George here are some of his very best. So this is it then. We've got good, we've got some of the purest evil we get in the series, we've got broken men, we've got key choices, connections new and old, we've got what is probably the chapter of the book. So let's go. We begin with the theme of justice, with the theme of no more waiting on knights and royals. It's self-made justice, if you like. I have the first quote of the chapter for you here. They came upon the first corpse a mile from the crossroads. So let's set the tone early. This is not going to be a happy-go-lucky chapter. The corpses that Brienne and her party find have been strung up in a dead tree, left not just for our famous crows, but the wolves as well. The tree is black, the faces are a mess, the legs are half-chewed. It's really quite the image, and... It's actually a summation of everything we've had in the Riverlands aspect of this book. We've heard so much about crows, the ever-present wolves again, about broken men and outlaws, and about salt pans itself, which is highlighted to us as the reason for these corpses being corpses. Yes, this is justice. These are the bodies of evil men, just like those I had to look upon once when she was back in these same lands, back in those crow cages. Justice is always a prevalent theme. The hated Randall Tarly, if you really do hate him, has been hard at work in that regard, but this was not his doing. Much like the farmers in Jamie's chapter last week, this was not done by the officials and the higher-ups that are supposed to be governing and doing this kind of thing. It's been done by the people themselves, taking matters into their own hands, if the Brotherhood can be counted as such. They have found these perpetrators of evil and they've made them pay in the worst of ways. As we are made to do so often, George gives us what is supposed to be good news, that some of these raiders have been caught and made to pay, and puts it in a horrible frame that robs the righteousness of it or the joy from it because these corpses are so horrible, it's such a horrible image. So right from the off, the tension is raised. We're in an area of obviously high conflict here. Some of the raiders are still around, they're still dangerous. Whoever did this is clearly dangerous. We've all got to be a bit more aware about Brienne and worried about her safety. But what else does it tell us? Crucially, it says that the Stoneheart Brotherhood are still acting upon crimes other than the Red Wedding, which is really all we've heard about them doing since Lady Stoneheart took over. They've just been hunting phrase, really. At least that's our assumption. We firstly aren't explicitly told this is the work of the Brotherhood, but I think even most first-time readers would make that guess. And we also don't know this is an actual explicit order from Stoneheart herself. Maybe this is just individual parties or bands from the Brotherhood trying to do the right thing. Although I would contend that, as we'll see further down the first page, the sheer scale of the justice here, the amount of corpses, makes you think that almost all the Brotherhood's attention must have been given to this task. But there's another issue. Is this a case of the Brotherhood doing justice and paying what's right for the innocence of salt pans, as Beric was wont to do in his day? Or has this only been ordered because Stoneheart would have good reason to believe Aya, her daughter, her missing daughter she wants back so much, had been there at the raid and is therefore avenging what she believes to be another crime against her family? We already know that she knows Aya was with the Hound at some point and she's not turned up anywhere else in Westeros. So, hmm, it's just one of those things we still don't know about Stoneheart. We don't know nearly enough. How much of her decisions are aimed at justice and the social welfare of the people and how much are geared to blind revenge for her family. We've discussed that previously. We're jumping ahead in the chapter a bit here, but it's the same issue with the orphanage. Have these children been gathered and protected, because children should be gathered and protected in this type of situation, or has Stoneheart given this order to collect children in the hope that one of them is going to be Aya? We can't say. But you can make the argument that it's irrelevant. Whether Stoneheart's personal motivations, the fact is justice has been served. The children 
have been protected, and the Stoneheart's motivations aren't precisely mirrored by everyone in the Brotherhood, we already know that. Willow and Gendry, and others, clearly do care about doing what's right for these children, so who cares why that opportunity has come about, let's just be glad it has. I mentioned scale a moment ago, because this isn't the usual one or two corpses we've found in trees at multiple points in the story so far. The corpses just keep going on and on and on. Even without the trees, they find gibbets or gibbets <laughs> full of them i never remember how to pronounce that one and we realize this isn't the picking off of some outriders this is a full force a near army that's been disabled and killed by the brotherhood whether this was done all at once or is this just the place that the brotherhood like to bring their victims is irrelevant really the point is this is a huge operation from the brotherhood so we can assume that they have grown in size have definitely been unleashed in terms of effort and violence due to stoneheart and are apparently getting really good at this larger scale stuff plus perhaps even more importantly we now know they are incredibly well armed and armoured from all the stuff that has assumably been taking from all these corpses. So look for that to be of importance come wind's time if they're going to be again more larger scale assaults. This also means that where the Brotherhood's strength has increased, Roger's band slash the Salt Pan Raiders have decreased in reaction. A huge percentage of their number has been killed in gruesome fashions. We already spoke a few chapters ago about how they were stuck in this area with no escape, but now it really seems like the walls are closing in for them. They must all be incredibly concerned. Each day could be their last, that the Brotherhood are going to come round the corner. Well, I think that goes to explain Roger's behaviour later in the chapter. He knows he's at the absolute end of this tether, there's nothing he won't do now, if there ever wasn't, and when he sees Brienne, I think there's an element of, I would rather go down in a charge, taking this one with me rather than end up in one of these trees but Brienne is not done noticing things for us in the beginning of this chapter here and the most important is this I'll read you the quote some wore cloaks of grey or blue or crimson the rain and sun had faded them so badly that it was hard to tell one colour from another others had badges sewn on their breasts Brienne spied axes arrows several salmon a pine tree an oak leaf beetles bantams a boar's head half a dozen tridents broken men she realised dregs from a dozen armies the leavings of the lords Yes, tempting though it might be to believe this force led by supposed Sandor was just made up of bloody mummers and evil men, it turns out it was not. There are members there, for sure, but there's Lannister men, Stark men, River men, Moutons, Manderley, Swifts, everyone. Now, we don't know if all these men were directly involved at Saltpan specifically, but it sure seems that way. And the point is the one that's been hammered into us through Brienne's arc. This is why we had the Broken Man speech in the first place. We've heard again and again about these awful awful unimaginable atrocities at salt pans some of the very worst stuff we hear about in the entire series if we're being honest but we've also been told how such men are created now we don't know whether to hate them or pity them or both and i personally think this conundrum presented in this way with the broken man speech coming from set maribold and then meeting these actual criminals here is some of george's very best work overall in the entire series it is amazing to make us consider both sides in this way to explain why such evil has come about in the world and it all ties back to what we found by duskendale back at the beginning this idea that everyone ends up the same no matter age or background or class thanks to the war the blindness of it all brienne puts it best when she calls them the leavings of lords that could have been the name for a whole book of this series couldn't it we wouldn't have blinked at that yes this is the effect of the game of thrones this is what men like tywin lannister although not he alone this was far from a one-sided war have left in the world the effect of war is not just men dying in battle it's what monsters it makes of the living and what they then do to the innocence of the world so while this is a chapter highlighting the good efforts left in in the one i think george balances that out brilliantly with this very dark beginning that has us questioning all sorts of conflicts within the human heart and it is absolutely superb as for brienne's reaction to this grisly scene well she's much like us in having to steal herself 
and remind that they are evil men. But she's also being classic Brienne in being suspicious about who might be near them and what danger they might pose. It's a kind of bitter irony that we open this chapter with the good news that the majority of Saltpan's criminals have paid the price, but that we find out the very worst of them has escaped and still have some violence left to give the world until Brienne and Gendry put it to an end for good. The topic of conversation changes when Septon Meribold gives us this incredible history of the inn at the crossroads, how it has changed inns and hands a bunch of times, definitely in recent years, and I think that story is told to us to show how normally it is the influence of lords and highborns that have had an effect on the place, but also how some staples of small folk life will persist whatever is thrown at them. Someone will always take up the task, as they have now, with this most noble purpose. Here is another quote for you. I never dreamed that keeping an inn could be so deadly dangerous. It is being common-born that is dangerous, when the great lords play their Game of Thrones. Yes, that's Septon Meribold replying to Hyle Hunt there, and that's exactly what we've been saying. If Dog is barking in agreement, we know we're right. And this talk of Masha Heddle links right back to the opening of the series, when we highlighted her as one of the first victims of this particular game. Recall, she was killed for the crime of being present when Catelyn took Tyrion, and that was it, really. On the flip side of that, readers get to perk up their ears a bit as we realise that this is where Arya saw her last big mark on Westeros. So what effect has that had on the place? We're going to find out. And by the by, this is the last mention of that term, Game of Thrones, in this book before we get to Dance, which mentions Game of Thrones more than any book since the actual A Game of Thrones. Upon reaching the inn, Brienne gives us the briefest memory of finally getting to salt pans. Yes, after all the talk of it through the book, we aren't even present when someone finally visits. I think we can all thank our luck for that fact. There, we are told about how this town is basically just gone, destroyed, like Masha Heddle, for the mere crime of being present when there was no ship to take Rorge and his band out across the narrow sea. This is one of the biggest casualties of the entire war, a town basically wiped out by outlaws in one fell swoop. Again, it's not that that kind of thing is happening all the time. There's really nothing comparable in the whole series, and the lords of the town all that's left, alone and ashamed in their little castle. It's perhaps lucky Brienne didn't have to deal with them. Who knows how she would actually react. But we go from death to life, as Brienne notes, when we finally approach the inn and we're immediately greeted by all these tiny children who don't even own clothes, they're so destitute. Things are in such a bad way that they are apparently led by a mere ten-year-old, as we are introduced to the amazing Willow. And what a character Willow is. Earlier on, I said essential children in reference to her and Gendry, but really, that is only including Gendry. Willow is a child, she's 10 years old, younger even than Aya, yet she's been forced to grow up way, way, way beyond her years incredibly quickly. I swear if you removed the line about her age from the text, you'd think she's closer to 16 by the way she talks, by the responsibility she's taken on. I always forget that's how young she actually is. It's awful to see, again, especially when she has to face down outlaws with a crossbow that might be heavier than she is later on, but still, she does it. She's a mini Brienne. Even with this current party of Podrick and Hyle and Brienne and Meribold and Dog, she still moves to protect the young'uns first and maybe even get some money out of these visitors. Okay, sure, yes, she's filling in for her sister Jane, but that doesn't make it any less impressive about how brave Willow is. But she's not the only protector there. George has done his clever trick of ramping up expectation by mentioning the forge very often as we approach this inn, by having the little boy run off in its direction and by having it go quiet in the background. And now we get to our reward as we see who was manning it. Brienne turned and saw a ghost. Renly. Of all the connections to expect in this book, this definitely wasn't one of them, Gendry and Brienne. But of course, it makes sense now. How many others could have such an emotional response at seeing someone who looks so much like a young Baratheon? Plenty of people could recognise that fact, sure, especially if we went back to the Red Keep, but it wouldn't matter to them half so much as it does to Brienne. Renly is the one she believes she failed, and I think that plays a part in her upcoming decision as well. 
she will not fail again. Obviously, the name of this smith is not given to us explicitly quite yet, but we all instantly know it's Gendry, finally returned to us. We haven't seen him since I was taken by the Hound when he and her had a little bust-up, little disagreement. He wasn't present at Old Stones with Stoneheart and the epilogue, so we've really not been given any clue to whether he was still with the Brotherhood or even still alive. As it turns out, he is on both counts and is currently looking after children smaller than he, just as he once did while on the way to the wall with a boat called Yorin. I feel like Gendry was always a fan favourite, he definitely was for me, so it's a welcome surprise to see him here still smithing, looking a bit older, still telling people he's just a smith when they confuse him with someone higher up, and still pretty grumpy and cynical, which makes a lot of sense. Willow wants the party to stay, Gendry doesn't. He's obviously wary of visitors, but Willow is wise enough to know they need food at the end of the day, especially as she feels there are even more young males to feed, some of whom are already holding crossbows. Child soldiers, essentially, a product of the war zone. And I think George has been quite particular with the names he gives this group as well. All of them are among the most common in Westeros. There's a Watt, a Will, a Tansy, another Pate, of course, a John. These are not special children, he almost seems to say. They're the most common of the common, important to no one but the parents who are gone and these good souls who are looking after them. Once they are accepted in, thanks to Septon Meribold and his food's presence rather than their swords, Brienne reveals that she intends to strike out just her and Pod, just as she did on her own way back in Brienne 1, another connection for us. She's convinced herself Meribold will be safe and still has no interest in either forgiving Hylehunt or letting him near Sansa, a choice I totally support. But Podrick provides the ever-present question, where next? We've heard that question through Brienne's arc as she details for us here that there's still no real answer. Possibility lies on three of the compass points, west, north and east, but dangers as well. Lysa is dead. Brynden Blackfish is besieged. No one lives in Winterfell anymore. It's obviously annoying for us, as we know where Sansa is, although it's probably a good thing Shinpod didn't attempt the high road, we know how dangerous that is at the moment. But we can see how frustrating it is for Brienne as well. After all this time, after all these efforts, she's still clueless. Not much further than asking people on the road about a maid of three and ten. Hence why she considers the fourth direction, the south, and what she terms as a failure. She calls it bitter, but does also admit she'd love to see her father, which I think is important for her to acknowledge. She even has the strength to admit she wouldn't mind being comforted by Jamie, even if there's still confusion in that being what men want rather than what she wants. In the end, she has no answer for Podrick, and it's fitting that at this place that demands a choice, Brienne will eventually lose the freedom to make one. Down below, back in the common room of the inn, there's even more children, and Brienne makes a fair comparison between Willow and Aya when she sees the former taking charge of everything. Brienne's never even met Aya, but I'd definitely wager that she and Willow would make a formidable team. Elsewhere in the room, we have two very different aspects of Brienne's party. Maribold is at his very best here. His ultimate purpose is being served as he brings food to these orphans and tussles their hair with promises of oranges. It's incredibly heartwarming to see. On the other side is Hylehunt who not only doesn't want anything to do with the children, but is actually suspicious of them. He's definitely not at his most endearing here with his views on child rearing and his lambasting of Brienne for daring to have emotions about such a tragedy. He uses that to press his ultimate goal, persuading Brienne to marry him. And this is part of the reason I still struggle to have any liking for the man. He's upfront, I'll give him that. He doesn't try to woo Brienne with any romantic notions. He wants to marry her for her lands and her incomes and is willing to give her a few children as his part of the bargain. He's generally just trying to make a deal out of it but it's cold it's clinical and i'm damn glad brienne doesn't even consider the offer for a split second not even that she just gets up walks away good job brienne overall it's a pretty wonderful scene we have happy fed children willow ruling with her wooden spoon septon Maribold doing what he's supposed to do like we say and we don't really get as many images as wholesome as this do we 
which is obviously intentional by George to set up the big fall that's coming. He wants us to know exactly what we're trying to protect here, this lovely feeling that we really do not get very, very often. We probably have to go back to Winterfell for that kind of thing. Before we get to all the ending, we have Gendry still being pretty salty, refusing to eat or take part in the prayer, and stalking off. Now, Gendry's mood is hardly surprising. I doubt he's all that happy he's been left with all the children while the others get to go out riding about everywhere, even if he does at least get his forge. He might still be upset about the loss of Aya, the loss of Beric, who we know he was really invested in. We don't know how well he gets on with the Lady Stoneheart regime. It's definitely interesting to see he's still committed to Rallor. There's something else we don't know about Stoneheart. Is she actively promoting the religious switch, given that's how she came back? Is she bitter about being brought back? Does she not really consider it either way? This mention of Gendry keeping to the new religion seems like the kind of thing that might have importance at a later date, but here it's used as a plot device to get Gendry out in the rain, which in turn gets Brienne away from this lovely scene and out into the darkness as well. So, say goodbye to Willow, basically, the children, Septim Meribold, and unfortunately, Dog, who seems to be having a great time bit in this chapter. Unfortunately, none of them will appear again after this. Note that Podrick, he nearly comes with Brienne, but she refuses him. We can probably breathe a sigh of relief at that. Things might have turned out very differently if he had. When she finds Gendry taking out his frustrations at the forge, Brienne's mind starts a ticking. Before we get there, note that Gendry is still very defensive over the fact that he is a knight, which ties in well with Brienne's arc of course. He's even making his own sword, which is cool. He's not waiting around to be gifted one, he's going to go out and make his own. But back to Brienne's thinking. She spent a lot of time looking at Renly, imagining him, remembering him. She knows his look. She knows Gendry is similar in some ways and different in others. It doesn't take her too long to, three books later, pick up Eddard Stark's mantle. He looks like a Baratheon. He's got a strong build. He's from King's Landing. Yes, Brienne realises who he is and is within a breath of perhaps sharing that information with him before Dog starts barking. For rereaders, our blood goes cold at hearing that. And I doubt it's particularly different for first timers as well. Brienne's natural suspicion kicks in, despite Gendry's insistence, it is just friends returning. After a whole book that has made Brienne question her suspicious nature, it turns out to be the right choice as she witnesses the riders come, armed, armoured and desperate, and she immediately recognises the monster coming in from the dark in the form of Biter. Already she knows the score. Too many, she thought, with a start of fear. They are too many. George knows when it's time to step it up, and he hits the mark perfectly here as he grabs his cinematic pen and starts scribbling. Lightning lights up the scene, making it so easy to picture in our minds, setting the dramatic tone perfectly. The lightning is enough for the both of them to see this famous snarling helm, and Gendry falls into the trap of supposed Sandor, whereas Brienne does not. She knows who comes with Biter. She knows what she's about to face, and she's not denying the feeling she's got in her gut. Yet still, because she is wonderful, Brienne thinks of the children first. Speaking of the children, one appears now as Willow steps out into this storm, holding that crossbow and standing up to seven fully grown, fully armed men. It is sheer amazing as a moment, and even if we don't get to hear what she says, we can glean it as pretty defiant, judging by Roger's response. And though George is yet to use his name, his speech pans are a dead giveaway. The response is vile, of course, and again, makes you appreciate that this is being said to a 10-year-old girl. But if Willow can be that brave, so can Brienne. And strap in, everybody, because here we go. Seven, Brienne thought again, despairing. She had no chance to get seven, she knew. No chance and no choice. Holy fucking shit, what a goddamn line. I'm always of changing opinions, but I genuinely think this might be the line of A Song of Ice and Fire, I'm willing to admit. It's absolutely, singly, perfect. All of Brienne's arc, and a lot of the arcs of those who came before her, has focused on how to choose to do the right thing, even when logic or safety says otherwise. We have spent countless hours over this reread project discussing what the role and responsibilities are for knights, for highborns, how even for adults surrounded by children. 
We've spoken about this in the lessons Ned gave Rob, in Sansa and Sandor, in Aya and Sandor, in John when his time as a wildling, in Daenerys as a mother and a conqueror. A Song of Ice and Fire is about a thousand things in one, but I truly believe this is one of its core, core concepts. Much as George might extrapolate and subvert usual themes and tropes, when we dig right down to it, what we have here is good against evil. But more interestingly, it's the option of being truly good or protecting oneself. As Brienne tells us, there is no choice when it comes down to it. There are seven against her. I don't think I need to go over the symbology in George picking that particular number. And she knows she will fail. She'll die. Probably the children too. And there still isn't a choice. There is a right thing to do whether they're seven or seventy. And she's going to do it. She is the hero. She is the knight. She, like Ned before her, is the one to sacrifice herself for the good of the children. And for Marybold. And even for Hyle. And damn it, even for Dog. Especially for Dog. Brienne will fight for all of them without needing a second's thought because it is good and so is she. Yes, what a fucking line. Brienne doesn't need any extra time for consideration. She thinks that line and then she steps out into the rain immediately. George keeping that cinematic image in our mind. Oathkeeper is strong in her hand. It's name never more apt than in this moment. Leave her be. If you want to rape someone, try me. Yes, she already knows how this is likely going to end. Yes, she's doing it anyway. As she so often is, Brienne is met with laughter. Interestingly, one of Roger's men, a wounded man, just wants horses and to be gone. Now, whether this is a trick or he generally wants to get away because they know the Brotherhood will be there soon, ceases to matter when Brienne purposely provokes Rorge with, of all things, a shot at his manhood. And it works perfectly because, well, of course it does. As we said earlier, this is a marked man. Half insane to begin with and now likely starving, has been on the run for months on end and of all things, is now being challenged by a woman he already hates. No, that's too much for angry Rorge. He might die soon, but this is one final victory, one final laugh he's sure he can claim. So he goes straight into her trap because Brienne is obviously a billion times smarter than he. The other stay away, again part of her plan, as we enter this dark duel in the rain. The gods were not that good, but her sword was. Fuck yeah it was. As soon as he gets there, Rorge gets a nasty cut, angering him even further. As his rage takes over, he aims a sleuth of derogatory terms at Brienne because that's obviously very fitting for the end of this arc, for all the things that people think about her to not matter at all as she lets Oathkeeper do the talking. We go back to good old Sir Goodwin and his wise advice of letting men beat themselves with their own pride and an underestimation of her. That's exactly what Brienne does here. She's just better than Rorge in every single way. I especially love her turning so the rain blinds him just as she winds up for the crucial moment of triumph. I'll read you the quote at length here. He wrenched his axe up once more, cursing, and lurched after her, one foot sliding in the mud, and she leapt to meet his rush, both hands on her sword hilt. His headlong charge brought him right onto her point, an oathkeeper punched through cloth and mail and leather and more cloth, deep into his bowels and out his back, rasping as it scraped along his spine. Now that sound you hear at home is the eternal cheering of everyone who has ever read this book. Yet, it gets better. Sapphires, she whispered at him, as she gave her blade a hard twist that made him shudder. Yes, Brienne even takes some joy at this victory of the evil that was visited upon her before, and it's enough for all of us to forget the wider situation and just revel in this singular victory of a good against bad, of Brienne against the world. George brilliantly builds up to this golden moment, only for him to do this to us. She stepped back and let him fall, and Biter crashed into her, shrieking. It's hard not to quote the two whole paragraphs detailing this attack, the feeling of him as an avalanche, landing in water that goes up into her nose and eyes, her head cracking against a stone, the loss of Oathkeeper, everything that can go wrong does, as the monster that is Biter tries to choke the life from her. And yet, even with everything I just mentioned, which would be enough to finish off most people, Brienne still has the presence of mind to fight back, to hit Biter again and again, to claw and gouge and do anything she can, even though none of it is working. 
There's a lot we can take from this. The idea that there are some monsters, some evils that cannot be defeated. The idea that there's always another one to fight. Mainly, I think it's to show that Brienne was right. No chance, she said. Even if it wasn't Biter, there were five others that could come to get her. Perhaps it's George telling us you can't do it alone. Or it absolutely is not, is a declaration that Brienne's not a good enough fighter. As I've seen some repugnantly stupid people claim before. She gets completely blindsided here, crushed before she even knows what's happening. Short of maybe one of the Cleganes and their sheer size, pretty much anyone you can name goes down the same way in this situation. What it really is, what George is really getting across, is that this is living horror. This isn't just death, but the very worst of death. This is a literal monster come to get her. He's, this is not a man, this is not a person that we're dealing with here. Bite us beyond all reason, all human comprehension. And that even that still doesn't make her choice a stupid one. She was warned of this fate. She knew and she still did it. I say that if Brienne had the ability to go back a few pages, knowing what Biter was about to do to her, she does it all again anyway. Besides, she's yet to give up. She tries to get her dagger out, but that fails too. Now he's trying to crack her skull open. Now he's breaking her arm, perhaps her nose as well. George is tearing our hearts out as we witness our favourite fighter lose such precious ability and one of our favourite characters full stop go through such pain. Then she hears Dog and Sir Hyle, and that's good news, but pretty irrelevant at this point. As she says, her world was no larger than the hands at her throat and the face that loomed above her. The rain ran off his hood as he leaned closer. It's just another amazing line. I really would just read this whole thing to you if I was allowed. And yet, even as George really starts to cackle and has Biter literally begin to eat Brienne alive, yeah, Brienne still thinks, I cannot die yet, she told herself. There's something else I still need to do. Even in the most horrible of situations, she wants to keep her oaths. But Biter keeps coming, keeps biting, and our brave Brienne resigns herself to the fact she will die, even to the point where she believes his tongue is pointed and a foot long. As we finish the chapter with the immortal, Brienne thought, just before the darkness took her, why? It almost looks like a sword. Yes, unbeknownst to her or the first time reader at this point, Gendry steps up with that newly made sword and proves himself a true knight as well. Because he saw Brienne bravely protect the children, because he also knows the right thing to do, because Podrick gave him tips on stabbing someone through the back of the head. Who cares? He did it. He saved the saviour, is a hero to the hero, and the day is won. Unfortunately, there's little victory to take. Well, the largest possible victory is obviously that the children and dog survived. That's the most important point. But we know from here, things do not improve for Brienne. Firstly, she's in incredibly bad shape. Broken arm and face bones as well. Surely a concussion or two. A hole in her damn cheek. It's no surprise she'll be on death's door soon enough. As for if she will ever recover the fighting form that she's just displayed and displayed previously in the book, well, we've got no inkling yet, but that definitely would be a cruel, sad fate for her indeed, one that readers will find very, very hard to accept. We won't go too deep into the coming events of Brienne 9 and her interactions with the Brotherhood, but suffice to say it is not what she deserves after this heroic act to end all heroic acts. She will not be thanked for what she's given up. None of it is fair, clearly. So George leaves us to wrestle with the choice on whether this was a good thing or a bad thing. I think the best way is to take it in Brienne's own style. There is no choice, really. Brienne would do this again and again because it is the right thing to do. And it's a shame we don't see Gendry after this and how this all affects him, but there are so many it's a shame we can apply to what really amounts as a Brienne epilogue coming up. We'll face that next time. For now, I'll say it's fitting we end this chapter with the word sword, given what so many of us think the next Brienne chapter truly ends with. And overall, we have to look at this for the amazing act it was. Brienne saved innocent children's lives. The entire bedrock of the series, if I may be so bold in naming Eddard Stark as such, is rooted in the same ideals. And that's probably enough chit-chat, because even though I've tried my best, like I say, there is just no doing this chapter justice. It, along with that one line, 
is beyond amazing and is the very finest of George's work. So let's just all kneel and thank him for giving us such. This really is just something apart from Brienne's Ark, from A Piece of Crows, from A Song of Ice and Fire. It is the perfect culmination of everything why this story is coming about why we are reading this story what george is trying to get across so much of it in just one single chapter in one single line and in one act brian amazing george good job good job buddy and i know what will happen as soon as i stop recording i'll think of a thousand more things to say about this chapter i'm sure you have at home others of course have done wonderful jobs analyzing it but really you've just got to read it and you've just got to feel it with this one so we'll leave it there but we're really on the top of the mountain here. Yes, what a high to finish on. A very, very high mountain. And I will leave it there. That is part 10 of A Feast for Crows. We are streaming towards the end, as I'm sure you can feel now of these chapters. I'm going to head off quickly, but before we go, let's quickly preview what chapters we've got next week, because obviously at this stage of the game, every chapter is hugely critical. We have Jamie 6, where we finally re-meet not just Brendan Tully, but Edmure Tully as well. And Jamie makes his big plan, his big, well, it gets Riverrun back, essentially, doesn't he? That's a really important chapter. We have Cersei 9, because we always have to have a Cersei, where this plan with Osney and Marjorie really, really gets going, and Cersei's kind of trying to get it from all angles. We have The Princess in the Tower, Ariane 2. Yes, I know, it seems like ages, isn't it? We still have that to wrap up the end of the Dawn arc with the uh, Queenmaker plot yeah we're looking forward to that that's one of my favorite chapters and we'll finish with elaine 2 slash sansa 3 the final stark chapter of the book the final sansa chapter ever that we've got and the longest chapter of the book so critical as we leave the eerie behind get to the gates of the moon introduce the idea of harry their heir and uh, and miranda royce as well so lots to think about there the big big chapter and of course after that we only have four remaining and that's the end of the book guys yeah i will say thank you again i know i've rushed it a bit today but uh, i'll get on this week thank you again for all your support for making july such a great month let's have it again now let's try and break our previous record and we will be back with you soon thanks guys